Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NABIP's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your healthcare happy hour. Synergy. Synergy is the name of the game when it comes to NABIP's 2023 annual convention held this year from June 24th through 27th in New Orleans, Louisiana. At the convention, our NABIP marketplace will showcase innovative new products and services that will be incredibly relevant to your career. Our keynote speakers and professional development courses will also provide you with the tools that you need to increase your value to your clients. There are just two more weeks until the early bird registration rate ends on May 26th. After that, the price to attend will go up by $50. So please go to nabip.org today and register now. May 11th was the official end date of the public health emergency that has been in place for over three years. There are several temporary health policies and flexibilities impacting Medicare, group, and individual plans that were put into place during the pandemic. Do you know which health care flexibilities will expire when? On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, we are sharing an excerpt from NAPIP's April 20th Compliance Corner webinar where NABIP Legislative Council Manager and CEO of MZQ Consulting, Jennifer Berman, discussed the end of the emergency periods in detail. If you are interested in watching the full webinar, you can go to NABIP.org under Membership Resources under Webinars to watch the entire thing. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for joining me. Hard to believe that we are finally here the end of the COVID-19 emergency periods and working our way out of all of the chaos, Uh, but we are. And today we are going to talk about what we know uh, as we begin to unwind all of the many changes that we we implemented in, in the spring of 2020. So today we're gonna look at three different distinct areas of the law and what we are unwinding as a result of the end of these national emergencies. First, we're gonna look at the end of the public health emergency and the implications of that. Then we're gonna look at the end of the outbreak period and what that means. And then finally, we'll turn to the unwinding of the Medicaid freeze that we saw that lasted from all the way back in 2020. So first, we're gonna look at the end of the public health emergency. And so the public health emergency is one of of three different types of national emergencies or three different distinct freezes that we saw. And the public health emergency specifically was the one that HHS 
determined. But but I want to just first start by talking about the fact that there are three um, and identifying which one it is that we are talking about. So this is specifically not the bill that we saw passed on April 10th. So on April 10th, President Biden signed a law, House Joint Resolution 7, that ended the national state of emergency related to COVID-19 that was declared under the National Emergencies Act. We are not talking about that just yet. We're going to talk about that and what the implications of that are for benefits purposes in a few moments. What we are talking about right now is the public health emergency that was declared by HHS back in 2020. Um, and that public health emergency was ended via an executive order as of May 11th, or it will be ended as of May 11th. And the end of that public health emergency is going to do two specific things. And then there's also a little bit of guidance that we see relative to hydrocarbonyl health plans as well. So the end of the public health emergency um, is going to change the rules related to COVID-19 diagnostic testing requirements. And it's also going to change some of the COVID-19 preventive services requirements. And we'll look at what exactly is happening there and what's staying the same. And then I also want to talk about the first dollar coverage rules and what changes there and how those impact health savings accounts and high deductible health plans. So let's talk first about COVID-19 diagnostic testing. So you will recall um, that under existing law, and indeed the law as it stands today, plans and issuers are required to provide coverage for COVID-19 diagnostic testing. When the public health emergency is over, so as of May 11th, plans and issuers will no longer be required to provide coverage for COVID-19 diagnostic testing for free. So that's a big, big difference. So basically, the prohibition on imposing cost sharing requirements, prior authorization, or other medical management testing on COVID-19 testing will be eliminated. Providers will no longer be required to make their public cash price of those diagnostic tests public on their websites. And the over-the-counter free test will no longer be required. So we're definitely seeing big changes, um, but those over-the-counter tests are still going to be considered to be diagnostic testing. So we're seeing these shifts begin to happen as we're getting back to really a more normal state of affairs. So question here that we see in the FAQs. Do plan participants need to be notified of the changes to these COVID-19 diagnostic testing rules after the end of a public health emergency? So we're not going to provide free testing for everybody anymore. There's no longer going to be the ability to go and get your eight free COVID tests. Do we have to tell all of our all of our participants that that's the case? And the short answer to that question is yes. The Department of Labor is going to require that plans provide notice. But if participants were previously notified that those free tests were no longer going to be available, that counts. Or if they notify the participants, the plan notifies participants of the general duration of the additional benefits coverage or the reduced cost sharing within a reasonable time frame in advance of the reversal of the changes. So there is an advanced notice requirement. You can't just cut this off on May 11th and have met that. 
But even this pre-notice requirement isn't enough if it was just provided for a prior plan year. So bottom line on this, the free test category is, plans can stop providing free tests after May 11, but they have to provide notice when they stop providing that, those free tests. And so while we are gonna see the free tests stop, the bigger issue is going to be not when can we stop providing the free testing, it's gonna be have we provided enough notice to our participants, the free testing has stopped in order to stop providing the free testing. So free test no longer required after May 11th, but have we told people in advance? Because if we haven't provided sufficient notice under ERISA that the free tests are no longer available, then the fact that it's not legally required anymore doesn't isn't enough. We can't just shut it off on May 12th if we haven't provided sufficient notice that it's not available anymore. And that's going to be the real, real sort of issue that most most plans face. And in many cases, we'll see the carriers handle this entire process, but it's gonna really hinge on the notice requirements much more than, you know, the actual, are the tests being provided? The next piece is preventive services. So COVID-19 preventive services are a lot about vaccines, specifically COVID-19 vaccines and their administration which are still going to be required to be provided without cost sharing requirements. And that's because they're gonna be folded into the preventive care definition that already exists under the ACA. So it's not that the end of the COVID-19 emergency periods suddenly means that we don't have to worry about vaccination, but what is changing is the out-of-network coverage rules. So you'll recall that during the pandemic, vaccines had to be covered really wherever plan participants got those vaccines and plans were not allowed to impose any cost-sharing requirements regardless of where that vaccine was received. So now, once we get past the May 11th sort of magical date, the normal preventive care rules are going to apply. And the plan is only going to have to provide first dollar coverage for preventive care in the form of COVID-19 vaccines if there's no vaccine available for an in-network provider. So it's still required COVID-19 vaccines and their administration is still preventive care, but out-of-network coverage does not need to be provided on a first dollar basis according to the regular ACA preventive care rules. Okay, I've mentioned sort of this magic measuring date of May 11th a number of times. What date am I really talking about here? When is an item considered furnished to the individual for determining when the public health emergency rules apply? So the magic date is the date that the service is rendered not the date that the claim is submitted. So this is all about when the actual service is rendered or for purposes of like a diagnostic test, the date that the test is purchased. Because if it's like an at-home test, we can't know the date somebody actually takes the test. We only know the date they purchased the test. So plans need to look at the earliest date for which an item or service is furnished within an episode of care to determine the date that, that we're dealing with here. And we're looking at the date that that service is rendered. So that May 11th date is sort of the magic date. 
and we're really, really focused in on before or after that date with respect to when the service is rendered or the item is purchased. One last point on the public health emergency rules, and that relates to um, COVID-19 testing and treatment under high deductible health plans. So reminder for everybody, you cannot provide medical care and services under a high deductible health plan before you meet the deductible or else you have violated those high deductible health plan requirements and you can't have an HSA with it. So high deductible health plans, there was guidance issued under IRS notice 2020-15. It said high deductible health plans don't fail to be high deductible health plans if they provide for COVID-19 testing or treatment before meeting the applicable deductible. And there was some concern that when the public health emergency ended, if in fact there was treatment for COVID before the high deductible was met, that that would invalidate the plan's compatibility with an HSA. The departments have come out and said they are aware of that concern and they are going to postpone judgment on it. So for the time being, high deductible plans can continue to provide for vaccinations um, and treatment and testing for COVID-19 before the deductible pending additional guidance um, and that will not make a plan ineligible to be the high deductible health plan matched with an HSA. Um, but we are anticipating more guidance and we have been promised that when that guidance comes out, um, plans will have at least a year to come into compliance without invalidating any HSA compatibility. So more to come on that point, but there will be time to come into compliance if there is a significant change on that point. All right, with that, I want to turn to the end of the outbreak period, and this is where we get all of our timing rules that got delayed. And this is also where we've gotten one of the most interesting of debates amongst the dorkiest of ERISA geeks. There is a lot of debate about when the outbreak period ends. So um, a, little, a little trip in the Wayback Machine. On March 13th of 2020, President Trump declared a nationwide emergency pursuant to the Stafford Act. Remember that for a moment. Uh, we didn't even realize at the time that it was pursuant to the Stafford Act. The Stafford Act is the presidential authority through FEMA for there to be an emergency. On February 9th of 2023, FEMA announced that it was going to end that nationwide emergency on May 11th of 2023, and that the agency would close the incident period for all emergency and major disasters declared from under the COVID-19 pandemic under the Stafford Act. Why does this matter and why do I care that the president declared this under the Stafford Act? Well, I care about this a whole lot because you will remember a few moments ago, I mentioned that on the April 10th, 2023, the president also signed House Joint Resolution 7 ending the national emergency under the National Emergencies Act. Okay. Many have interpreted or misinterpreted the National Emergencies Act to be the end of the national emergency for purposes of the outbreak period. But that's not consistent with what our understanding is of the administration's position as to when the national emergency ended for purposes of the outbreak period. The administration appears to be taking the position that the outbreak period, for purposes of the outbreak period, 
the national emergency ended on May 11th under the Stafford Act. Why does this matter? This matters because the outbreak period ends 60 days after the end of the national emergency. Are we having fun yet, Dan? Are you having fun? I'm having a blast. Okay, so the outbreak period ends 60 days after the end of the national emergency. And when the national emergency ends for this purpose is really, really important so that you can know what 60 days after that date is. And for those of you who have been following along in the benefits press, some people have come out and said that that date is June 9th. And other people have come out and said that that date is July 10th. The reason that you have seen different dates in the benefits press is because people are using different measuring dates. Some folks used the date of the statute, the federal statute, April 10th. Other folks have used the date of the executive order, May 11th. When you go back and look at the original outbreak period guidance, it cites to the Stafford Act, not the National Emergencies Act. The statute ends the national emergency for purposes of the National Emergencies Act, not the Stafford Act. The executive order is under the Stafford Act. Therefore, consistent with what we are hearing out of the Biden administration, appropriate measuring date is May 11th, and therefore that the outbreak period will end on July 10th. That was so simple, right? The national emergency for purposes of the outbreak period under the Stafford Act, the Stafford Act ending date of the national emergency, May 11th is declared under executive order, and that gets you to July 10th. Now we're gonna talk about what that means. So the end of the outbreak period does a few things. It affects the dates for COBRA, it affects the dates for HIPAA special enrollment, and it affects the date for internal claims and appeals and external review. So let's walk through that. So basically what the outbreak period did was to create disregarded periods during which time essentially stopped. So we call these tolling periods under the law, but if you think of it like the clock just stopping and there's a number of different clocks under COBRA. These include most prominently the 60-day election period for COBRA continuation coverage, um, the 45 days that folks have to make their COBRA premium payments, um, and the date for providing COBRA election notices. So let's look at some examples of what that's going to look like as we unwind things now. Um, so if we have an individual who experiences a qualifying event for COBRA purposes and loses their coverage, on April 1st of 2023, um, that person would be eligible to elect COBRA coverage and provide, and that person is eligible to elect COBRA coverage and provided their COBRA election notice on May 1st, 2023. What is their deadline to elect COBRA? So typically they would have 60 days. Um, in this case, the last day of their COBRA election period would be 60 days after the end of the outbreak period. So time would not start on May 1st and be 60 days from May 1st in this case. Their clock would be stopped until the last day of the outbreak period, which as you recall was July 10th. 
and they would have 60 days from July 10th or until September 2nd of 2023. All right, how about paying COBRA premiums? All right, so next example, we have an individual who has a qualifying event and receives a COBRA election notice on October 1st. They elect continuation coverage um, on October 15th, and that coverage is retroactive to October 1st. When must the individual make their initial COBRA premium payment and subsequent monthly COBRA premium payment? So they have until 45 days after July 10th to make that payment. Why? Well, the clock didn't start for their payment until July 10th. It didn't start because it hadn't been a full year yet. The existing outbreak period rules would have would start after one year, if a year had elapsed, we had gotten all the way to 2023, it would start. But in this case, July 10th, the end of the upper period came sooner. So it started then on July 10th. And then we had 45 days after July 10th, which is August 24th. They had until August 24th, 2023 to make their initial payment. The payment had to include their monthly premiums for October 2022 through July of 2023. That's what was due by them. August payment wouldn't be due until August 30th. I mean, it's the initial payment that you have 45 days for. And then they would have the normal 30-day grace period relative to August. All right. So those are COBRA examples under the outbreak period. Let's turn next to HIPAA special enrollment, which is another one that has outbreak period special rules for it. So the HIPAA special enrollment periods are also subject to the outbreak period. So they also have the special stopping clock. And here, the periods that are disregarded are the 30-day period um, for special enrollment in the event of marriage or birth of a child, or the 60-day period. Um, and the 60-day period applies in special circumstances, for example, the right the eligibility for um, the CHIP um, in the event of loss of coverage under, under a Medicaid program that, that triggers a 60-day right. And then the date individuals have to notify a plan for of a qualifying event or determination of disability. So anything that, that triggers a special enrollment right under HIPAA. Um, and again, same outbreak period rules. You've got a year or until the last day of the outbreak period is sooner before your clock starts. Okay. The individual is eligible for an employer's group health plan, but previously declined participation. On April 1st, 2023, the individual gave birth and would like to enroll herself and their child in the employer's plan. However, open enrollment doesn't begin until November 15th of 2023. When may the individual exercise her special enrollment rights? The individual and her child both qualify for special enrollment in the employer's plan as early as the date of the child's birth. So the individual can exercise her special enrollment rights for herself and her child until 30 days after July 10th of 2023, which is August 9th, 2023, if she pays the premiums for the period of coverage after the birth. All right, this is the one, things and appeals, that I think probably got the least conversation although it has caused in many ways some of the most interesting cases for me at least um, recently and that is that the periods for claims and appeals 
as well as external review have all also been extended as a result of the outbreak period. So all of the ERISA claims and appeals procedures have been extended. Um, and this has created some really interesting, really, really interesting results, um, particularly in the self-funded world, where we've seen a very big mismatch between timing of uh, claims being filed and the rules under stop loss policies. So really, really problematic cases have arisen because of late claims and late processing of claims that have been permitted because of this extension and then not lining up with, with when payment was permitted under those stop loss policies. Um, but the same rules apply. The clocks stopped and there was time for all of these things to be processed as a result. Again, same rules. The deadlines all just stop. So every time you're calculating something, the period of time during which the outbreak period applies, it's as if time wasn't passing for a year or until 60 days after the outbreak period ends. All right. Oh, Medicaid unwinding. Under the public health emergency, with limited exceptions, the state Medicaid agencies generally couldn't terminate the enrollment of any Medicaid beneficiaries who were enrolled on or after March 18th of 2020. And that was called the continuous enrollment condition. And so for three years, if you got on Medicaid, you didn't have to go off of Medicaid. And that changed at the end of this past March. Um, and there was a statutory change that created that. And that was the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which announced the discontinuance of the continuous enrollment conditions. And so as of April 1st, state governments resumed conducting Medicaid eligibility determinations and have the ability to tell people that they are ineligible for Medicaid. Um, and as a result, folks are losing their Medicaid eligibility for the first time in the past three years. It's a pretty big deal. And that means fair amount for folks who are now looking for coverage elsewhere. So, and it is creating some special enrollment options. So as of April 1st, um, what, what that is doing is this creates a special enrollment period in group health plans for folks who are terminated from Medicaid coverage, also creates a special enrollment right through the state insurance marketplaces and a special enrollment right through healthcare.gov. So let's look at what that means first for employer-sponsored plans. An individual becomes eligible for special enrollment in their employer-sponsored plan. If they're otherwise eligible to participate in the plan, the employee or their dependent was enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP and their Medicaid or CHIP coverage was terminated as a result of loss of eligibility for that coverage. So typically that individual has to request coverage in that group health plan within 60 days after the termination of that Medicaid coverage. And so what we are seeing is that many individuals are gonna lose that coverage, they're losing it now, and it's during the outbreak period, which means that they are losing their eligibility, they have a special enrollment, right? It is right now before July 10th, 
that special enrollment right is going to last for 60 days after July 10th. And so people who are eligible for coverage under group plans are going to stay eligible until September 8th of 2023. So here, anybody who lost coverage through Medicaid and is eligible under the group plan basically can get onto that group plan whenever they want between now and September 8th when they do the coverage is prospective. So they don't get on it retroactive to the date of the loss of coverage under Medicaid, they get on it moving forward. The other alternative is that individuals who lose Medicaid coverage are also eligible for special enrollment through the health insurance marketplaces or the state-based exchanges. And that coverage is available for individuals who lose coverage between now and July 31st. Um, and there's a 60-day special enrollment period for that. EMS has a special enrollment program for them. Thank you for joining us for NAPIP's Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. For more information on NAPIP's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAPIP.org.